So a priest, a pastor, and a rabbi <laughs> do not walk into a bar, but they are having a friendly argument with each other over which one is best at their job. And so they want to figure it out in this fashion. They are going to wager that each of them can go out into the wilderness, into the forest, find a bear, and convert that bear. They say they'll join back together a week later. A week later, the priest and the pastor join in. Rabbi's nowhere to be found yet. The priest starts speaking. He's got scratches all up and down his face, along his arm, black eye, arm in a splint. He says, I started reading the catechism to the first bear I found. He didn't like it very much. I sprinkled a little holy water on him, but eventually we figured it out. He's coming for his first confirmation next Sunday. (laughs) Pastor starts speaking. He's got two black eyes, is walking on crutches, and has his full arm in a cast. He says, I found the first bear I could, and I started preaching the holy gospel, the word of the Lord to him. He didn't like that very much, so we started wrestling. And we wrestled up mountains and down mountains until finally we came to a stream, we came to a river, and I wore him out with the gospel. Because I took him to that river, and I gave him the full-on Holy Spirit immersion. And he is now redeemed in Christ. But what about our friend the rabbi? They go over to the rabbi's house and they're led into the rabbi's bedroom. And it's very dark in there. And they see a shadowy figure lying on the bed who is wrapped in a full body cast from the top of his head to the very bottom of his toes. And they can barely make out the muffled sounds of the rabbi trying to speak. So they lean in and they hear, maybe, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have started with circumcision. (laughs) The moral of this story is, Actually, there are several. (laughs) One is that not everything that is wild should be domesticated. And another, and related to what we're going to talk about here today, is that even when religion thinks it has all the answers, most often it does not and winds up causing itself and other creatures some harm. Brings me to today's movie, Beasts of the Southern Wild. Now, when I first started watching this movie, it reminded me of something I had not experienced for a whole host of years. See, I lived in Florida in a hurricane evacuation zone. I think we were evacuated maybe six or seven times over the space of the seven years that I lived there. And in the lead up to the storm, the journalists would always go out and interview the people who are either surfing or drinking. Surfing, and which at least I understood a little bit. Actually, at that point, I got the drinking part, but it was still insane. And I always wondered, what are these idiots doing staying behind? They were the ones who would not leave or said they were not going to believe. They were going to ride out the storm. Well, this movie kind of flips that sense of what are those idiots doing? Because this movie is about a community of people who do stay behind, Stay connected to their land. 
the Beasts of the Southern Wild is about a group of truly off-the-grid folks. I mean, I never saw money, let alone credit cards, pass anyone's hands in this movie. About a bunch of off-the-grid folks, inter-ethnic, interracial group of people who exist in the margins of their society. They, in fact, live in a place that they lovingly call the bathtub. They call it the bathtub because they are on the wrong side of a levee outside of New Orleans, the side of the levee that is dry is the side that protects the heavy industry and the sugar plantations. The side of the levee that they live on floods all the time, hence the bathtub. Now, this movie takes on a lot to talk about. It takes on Katrina and biblical storms, and it takes on global climate change, and it takes on the offenses and indifferences of big, nameless, faceless corporations and bureaucratic government officials, and in a more intimate way also, the loss and the search for parents and love and community. There is a lot in this movie to admire. One thing I didn't admire so much is that uh, at times the filmmaker, who's a young Jewish guy, went to Wesleyan University, I think he's 23 years old, he's clearly real ambitious, and he's got a great vision. At times he turns his subjects into, if you've heard this phrase before, it's a literary phrase, a historical phrase, quote-unquote, the noble savage. You ever heard that? White people did a lot of this and sometimes still do this to Native Americans. Colonizers did it to the people in Africa. That somehow, as a reverse form of racism, they said that people who are closer to nature, well, they're more ideal, they're more pure. And even if it was a less horrendous form of racism than enslaving people or robbing them of their land, it still diminished their humanity. There are times in this movie that it comes too close to making the residents of the bathtub noble savages, thinking that somehow they're completely better than us because they live off the grid. But not entirely. This movie has too much heart and too much humanity to dismiss it. And for me, it largely comes through this character. That is Hush Puppy. Hush puppy who's six years old and doing what she's doing right here, she listens to the creatures. She listens to the beasts. She is in touch with the natural world. She is a child, a six-year-old child who is growing up in what would be for many of us unimaginable squalor and poverty. And she has such tremendous heart and tremendous resiliency. Now this movie is part myth. Part hero's journey, part fable, part fairy tale. And like those original Grimm's Brothers tale, like those original stories, you know, not the sanitized ones that I got read in the 70s and the 80s, not the ones where all the drama and all the peril is taken out of it. This movie is like those Grimm's Brothers tales. There's real fear. There's real death. There's real loss. And it reminds me that there's really two different kinds of kids literature, kids lit. One is the calming and pacifying kind. My favorite was Goodnight Moon. Goodnight Moon still read for those of you who have kids right now? Can I see a show of hands? All right. All of my childhood has not disappeared. That's fantastic. Good to see the classics abide. Goodnight Moon, Goodnight Brush, Goodnight Old Woman Whispering Mush, Goodnight Hush. No, Goodnight Bowl of Mush, sorry. Hey, come on, it's been a lot of years, and I've only read this to my godson and my nieces maybe 10 or 15 times. It's been a while. So I think that's pretty good for someone who's got, still got that rattling around in his psyche. But there's a whole other tradition of kids' literature which doesn't, 
as fantastical as it can be, try and hide the wildness, the difficulty, the unknown, the scary from kids' lives. The most famous of these, and it's gotten so much notice because of the movie, but also because the amazing author, Maurice Sendak, so ahead of his time, died this past year. I remember where the wild things are. And I remember after the story of the wild, where the wild things are was read to me, or the uh, night bakery, I remember having to pull the covers up just a little bit because it was a little scary. But part of me also knew that was the truth. That life is a little scary. Life is very often wild. And kids need to learn that, too. That's what those old traditional fairy tales were for. Life is tough. Life is unpredictable. Life is wild. Hopefully not so wild to the point of absolutely crushing our hearts, but life will always maintain its wildness. It's a lie if we say that life ever stops being wild. I remember from uh, Friends. Remember that show that was on the late 90s, early 2000s? Uh, Phoebe, who's the flaky uh, folk singer, uh, singer character, she uh, gets a little job singing in the public library in New York City. And all the kids come in and all the parents are standing alongside and they're expecting little like Rafi songs, if you're happy and you know it, and all that kind of stuff. And pink dinosaurs and purple elephants and all that fun kind of stuff. And she starts singing songs about recognizing, well, what happens when the man you're sleeping with is a bisexual? You know, interesting awakening. You know, she said it without homophobia or anything, but just, hey, sometimes we awaken to these things. And, you know, the grandparents that you love, sometimes they smell a little bit like death because they are going to die. And the kids are just kind of, you know, sitting there watching. And the parents in the back, oh, boy, you can see the whisper starting. And in, like, the next couple scenes, we realize that Phoebe has been fired. Until the last scene of the episode, she's singing in the coffee shop where all the friends hang out. And a little kid comes in and he peeks his head in and and he says, is this where the lady sings who tells the truth? <laughs> yes. And can someone give me like one of those real shrill whistles? I can't do that. Thank you. Whistles down the road and all the kids compiling in to hear the songs of the lady who tells the truth. I'm not against comfort, and I'm not against comforting truths, but comfort itself will not really give us insight into the inherent wildness, the unformedness, the still-growingness of our lives. I mean, it's one of the most basic truths as Western psychology and Eastern psychology has identified. Perhaps some of you remember Maslow's hierarchy, the hierarchy of needs shaped like a mountain, that down at the bottom are security needs, a baseline, and that's essential. But remember, if we want to continue to climb up to that place of real love, that place of self-actualization, as he called it, God consciousness, other traditions might call it, enlightenment, some other traditions might call it, We have to transcend just the desire for security. So I like that this movie doesn't tie up its loose ends, and they are all over the place, because the movie is about wildness, and so in its storytelling is wild itself. Rather than giving us answers for what's going on, it poses a question, invites us, experience as much as you can. Pay attention to as much as you can. Feel yourself moved by as much as you can. Open your heart, open your mind, pay attention. That's the wildness here in this movie. 
There's a real great connection to our transcendentalist heritage. For me, the strongest part of our Unitarian Universalist traditions, the transcendentalist heritage, Emerson and Thoreau and Margaret Fuller and Theodore Parker and all these great names you may have heard of that really said, you know what? Life is off the written page. Life is in the blanks. Life is in the emptiness and the unformed spaces. Life is in the wildness. Go out and experience it. Reasons, one of the reasons I love this part of our tradition so much is that it helped to shift religion and spirituality profoundly. Shifted from a question that too many people still think religion and spirituality is about. Is religion about having an answer for everything? Or is spirituality really about being able to relate to anything? Is religion about having an answer for everything or about being able to relate to anything? Most especially the anything that all of us, whatever it is, we are dealing with right now. How are we relating to it? Because chances are if we're not relating to it too well or we're resisting it and we find it persists because we keep resisting it, chances are it's because there is a wildness there that really we probably want to tame. But we find that we can't. Now, when that first kind of religion, that kind of religion that wants to have an answer for everything... When that passes away, sometimes people can get very angry. They can get very threatened. It's one of the reasons that fundamentalism, not in all its forms, is violent, but can grow very violent. Because if they, fundamentalists often feel that if you question the foundation of their story, if this one story is not absolutely true and does not give us the answer that we seek, then somehow nothing is real or true or could be true at all. I love the song, uh, Losing My Religion by R.E.M. You remember that? It's amazing to think that that song is now, has, has been alive for half my life. That came out when I was 21. I'm 42 now. That song is an oldie now, which makes me an oldie now. And I have to sit with the wildness of what that means. <laughs> now, really what that song is, and especially Michael Stipe's lyrics, they're very often impressionistic. They don't come out and give a straight narrative like this movie. It doesn't say A, then B, then C. It gives little snippets of realization. And so the song starts with these words, life is bigger is bigger and you you are not me the lengths that i will go to the distance in your eyes oh no i've said too much that is that moment which i think he captures perfectly when we recognize as the priest and the pastor and the rabbi did is that life represented by that bear is bigger than their systems of doctrine How big is life? Well, I heard a great example of this this past week. And this is one of the reasons why people who believe in creationism and other pseudoscience resist it. Because they're afraid sometimes of how truly big life is. I read this from a young science writer named Brian Hofstein. He said, doing a little scale experiment, a thought experiment about how old the cosmos is and how long human beings have really been around. He wrote this. He said, with respect to the cosmos, humanity has just been born. Hypothetically, if our 14 billion year old universe, I'll say that again, 14 billion year old universe was scaled down to just the span of 10 years from the very beginning of everything to where we are right now, scale that 14 billion years down to 10 years, a decade. He said dinosaurs would have been, have, have been extinct just 17 days ago. Our earliest relative, Lucy, would have been playing around on the savannah 19 hours ago. 
Modern humans would have first appeared 80-80 minutes ago. The birth of Jesus just 46 seconds ago. And the Declaration of Independence would have been signed a mere five seconds ago. Life is big, people. Life is big and bigger than our answers for it. For some people, this is a cause for resistance and anger and rewriting textbooks. And for some people, the fact that you can shoot down that kind of creationism means that all religion, all spirituality is out the window. But we're sitting here today in this kind of community because we know that kind of literal mindedness, fundamentalism, does not exhaust all of spirituality. See, religion that seeks to domesticate the inherent wildness, make everything answerable, make everything safe, assure that there are always happy endings and we know exactly what those happy endings are going to be, is religion that is always playing defense. But spirituality that strengthens us to engage the wildness of our lives, outer and inner, to embrace the unknown and the insecure in our lives, this can be liberating spirituality. I want to give you an example of this, and it's by a woman named Mary Oliver, who's a UU poet, who many of you know. And these words I'm going to run through in just a second. The summer day, and think of it not just as the summer day, but this summer day. This summer day, think of it as today. Think of it as an opportunity for awakening today. She draws out the movement from thinking about the big, big questions down meaningfully into our lives. She starts out with a big question. Who made the world? Who made the swan? Who made the black bear? Who doesn't think these questions from time to time? They're not bad questions. They can lead some really good places. But she starts to shift. Go ahead. Who made the grasshopper? Another big question. And then she shifts. This grasshopper, I mean. Not the grasshopper. This grasshopper. The one who has flung herself out of the grass... Who, one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. See the movement from the grand to the specific, from wanting answers to questions deep down into the relationship with things, things we can touch and hold in our hands, if not get our hands fully around. Next, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes, enormous and complicated. That is true for all of nature, enormous and complicated. We are that. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. And now she snaps her wings open and floats away. It was here. Now it's gone. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. I love that. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention for me. It brings to mind a piece of our core beliefs and core values here at Wellsprings, which is that we can experience God without being able to define God, that there is more majesty and more spiritual depth in our words than our words can even contain. They point to something deeper than language. I do know how to pay attention, she says. I know how to be in touch. How to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and how to be blessed. 
Are we giving ourselves a little space for being idle and blessed today? Or are we just moving, moving, moving forward on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing? How to stroll through the field, she said. How to take her time, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Maybe we introject this question to ourselves. Tell me, what else should I have done? Maybe we're a little defensive that we take a little time to get out into the nature, out into wild. Because shouldn't we really be being productive with our lives? Shouldn't we be doing stuff? Because important people do stuff and unimportant people like they go out into the wild. Now she's questioning that assumption. Because here's what it comes down to. Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? That grasshopper who was here and now is gone. Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Time is fleeting. We are fragile. Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Starting from that place, the poem is, of wanting to figure it all out down and deep into that place of intimacy and relationship. And yes, at this form, at least, we are fragile and we are finite. How will we use the time that we have getting in touch here and now? Why wild? Why does she use that word? Wild because she answered her own question implicitly in the poem, because life is bigger than our ability to explain life is. And why precious? Because if we can make peace with the wildness of our lives, because then we can learn to relate to anything through the power of attention and focus and love and opening our mind and opening our heart. Wild and precious, if we accept these, then we can wake up to the miracle. If we keep resisting the wildness, we will never learn the preciousness and miracle will be only a word to us. Miracle, getting in touch, finding the natural wildness all around us. I think of this for myself, this picture. That's me hanging ass backward off a rock. The second last day of Outward Bound that I did this past October. Now, let me scale this out for you a little bit. It may look like, you know, I'm five feet off the ground. I'm 50 feet off the ground. And the only thing that's holding me there are the people down at the base camp and what's around my midsection. And I have just scaled that wall for the third time. And I'm feeling like a freaking master of the universe. Because let me scale out even a little bit more for you. That is one of the highest points in Pisgah National Forest. And so I am looking down not quite directly, but I can almost see the ground 5,000 feet below. Whew, I guess my heart racing a little bit here right now. And I know some of you are, I know there's some afraid of heights people here. Go and do it. Go do something like this in your life. It was so glorious. And after they tethered me down, we were walking back down the mountain. It was about a two-hour climb down to get to the base camp from which we started very early that morning. I fell on my butt three times. I mean, I did the tough stuff here, right? I think because I was still so high from how high I got, natural high, I was not paying attention to the next steps of the journey. After the third fall, all my teammates, now we loved each other, we bonded with each other, we shed blood, sweat, and tears, literally. That's not metaphorical with all those folks. They started laughing at me. And it was good. To have that humility and that humor back after scaling the mountain. Nicholas Kristof, who 
as many of you might know, is an op-ed uh, columnist for the New York Times and actually writes a lot about the kind of people that are forgotten about by the wider society nationally and internationally, like the people who live in the bathtub. He recently went on a 10-day excursion off the grid, the Pacific Trail, into places where there's still snow and ice, even in the middle of summer. He went there with his daughter, completely out of touch with anything but their ability to find a map and locate themselves and get lost, get lost wonderfully. He said, perhaps wilderness is an antidote to our post-industrial self-absorption. It is a place to be deflated and humbled and awed all at once. That's what the wildness of nature can do. Because I got to tell you, I, I remember getting back to that airport in Charlotte, North Carolina. After Outward Bound was done. And I was so sad. Because <laughs> I had, again, everything I quote and quote needed. And yet we were all just racing past each other, not paying attention to each other. All just headed somewhere else, not paying attention to the ground underneath our feet. Not connecting. This past week I had a near accident, which really, truly was not my fault. Someone cut me off because they did not use their blinker. And after I was done cursing at this person, I said, okay, there's a mindfulness lesson here. So I put on Facebook, and a number of you answered it, that, uh, you know, an excellent practice, perhaps the finest practice, given how many of us spend time in the car each day, in mindful communication is to always turn on our blinker, signaling that we are about to make a move. It's what this person didn't do and almost caused an accident. And someone in commenting agreeing said, yes, another of my pet peeves is this. The person who is on their cell phone going through the checkout line. I love that. The checkout line. I mean, that's a great word. The checkout line. Not interacting with the person behind the counter who is doing the checking out. And what this person on Facebook said, the person you're checking out is a person, not a robot. The implication is that they're not there just to serve you. And they're not a cog in your wheel. They're a person and an opportunity to relate. Again, the deepest spirituality is not, do we have answers for everything? It is, can we relate to anything and also anyone? That is a daily practice not to check out, even when we're on the checkout line. See, too much catering to the needs of our ego, the needs of comfort, the needs of control, the needs of always wanting to make sure we know exactly where we stand. This is a great way, and by great way, I mean a horrible way, to take our own and other people's lives for granted. And the minute we start taking life for granted is the minute that we stop really living. We take our lives for grace. And in gratitude, when we can embrace that outer and also inner wildness. There's a reason that mystics and saints and seers from all the world's traditions went into the desert, went into the forest, went into the wilderness because they found there a new, more amazing, more mind-blowing, more heart-opening understanding of God, of enlightenment, of what it meant to be really, truly alive. Now, I know that most of us are not going to do Outward Bound. And if I'm lucky, I'll get to do Outward Bound once or twice more in my life. Our lives are not on retreat. 
as much as we can learn from ourselves about retreat. And so what matters, what matters truly, is learning to engage the wildness in everyday life. And most often that comes about by engaging the wildness, the wilderness that is within each and every one of us, and sometimes particularly the people we think we know best, and recognizing that we can't even control them, and we probably should stop trying to. As many of you know, I came off of a week-long Vipassana insight meditation retreat. And on the last day or so, they worked with us in what is called equanimity. Equanimity, which is kind of, as they say, the coolest of all the uh, limitless qualities within Buddhism. The others are very heart-centered, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy. Equanimity, translated, they said, is kind of the ability to look at another person who we love and be with another person who we love and know that perhaps in that situation there is nothing we can do to take away their suffering or to take away their struggle and still simply be present to them and present with them. That is the ability for equanimity. And uh, the universe has such a wonderful sense of humor because I had an opportunity to practice that the first day back. Now, today is our sixth wedding anniversary, and Teresa said I could tell this story, so thank you for this. I was coming off that deep high, that deep natural spiritual high of a week-long retreat, of being so in touch with my own heart and my own soul and my own emotions, and driving back just feeling so, not blissed out, but blissed in, in touch. And it was not the same kind of week for Teresa. She had to put down another of our beloved pet rabbits. She had had a really horrendous week at work. And she was down. And I got back thinking that maybe I could just kind of spread out some of this equanimity. Kind of cast equanimity seeds all around me. (laughs) Have some. I've got plenty. (laughs) And what I started doing is what, honestly, guys fess up. So much and so many of us try to do. I wanted to fix her. I started making suggestions. I started saying, have you tried this? Have you tried that? And I could see her kind of physically and certainly emotionally retreat from me. Now, fortunately, idiot that I am, I got a time out because we had to take her car in to be serviced. And so we got an opportunity to separate from each other. And in that moment... I asked myself, what does equanimity really mean in this situation? And we got to the car dealership, and I could see that she was just sad. It had been a brutal week. And I could see that she wasn't feeling real good about herself. And I said, listen, I know that I cannot make you see yourself through the eyes that I see you. And how wonderful you are and how much I love you and how beautiful you are and all those kinds of things. I said, I know I can't make that so. And I said, I know when I try to make that so, all it does is increase the distance between us. So I hope you can forgive me for trying and I'm going to stop trying. And with that, the energy in our car just softened and she started crying. And we went on to have a tremendously wonderful reunion evening with each other. I cannot contain nor control her wildness, her wilderness. We cannot contain or control the wildness or the wilderness within anyone that we love. 
I think of the words from Dr. Zhivago from Boris Pasternak's beautiful novel describing a character who really started to get what enlightenment, what awakening was all about. He describes her this way. She was here on earth to grasp the meaning of its wild enchantment and to call each thing by its right name. I'll repeat that. She was here on earth to grasp the meaning of its wild enchantment and to call each thing by its right name. Not to control, not to manage, not to minister, especially with the people closest to us, but simply to love and to be present to the wildness and the unknown and that which is fundamentally untamable in all of us. When we can do this, we can recognize the wisdom of what Hush Puppy said at the end of her hero's journey in the movie. I love this. When it all goes quiet behind my eyes, that's what the mystics say, the contemplatives say, when it all goes quiet behind my eyes, when we quit trying to figure every last thing out as an excuse to think we can control everyone, when it all goes quiet behind my eyes, the six-year-old says, I see everything that made me flying around in invisible pieces. I see that I'm a little piece in a big big universe she can't control or have an answer for everything but she can relate to anything now how can we do this practice here's a brief suggestion how you might try today on this summer day take a breath take a big deep mindful breath and maybe close your eyes you can do this now or do it later actually it's better if you do it later And recognize that that breath, that air that you are taking in, is connected to every single saint, every single sinner, every single great person, every single awful person, every single person who ever lived is present right here and right now in the breath. There's a reason that the ancients had the same word for breath and the same word for spirit. See if we can really open up to that and to know that we are a little piece, not a meaningless piece, but still a little piece in a big, big universe. Well, then we can get a little bit of sacred distance from our ego, which wants to comprehend everything and wants to control everything. Getting away from the eyeing and the mying and the sighing and the I, me, mine. And to know that there are deep capacities within all of us to be that little piece connected to the big, big universe. And we can do that. We know that we are at home. So today, may you be at home. And may you be wild. Because you already are. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O untamed and untaming God, may we recognize that creation is always unfolding, creation is always beckoning, revelation is, as our heritage says, unsealed. May we not seal it up with a closed mind or a locked down heart or a soul that thinks it has reached its capacity already. 
May we get in touch with the untamed and the untaming. The wildness and wilderness within and without. May we find those places of the big, wide spaces and find ourselves truly blessed to know that we are at home in those big, wide spaces. In fact, they are for us and we are for them. Amen.